Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Dr. Yee here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back, everyone, to something that is going to be rather special here today. Um, something that it was it was a mutual project. It was something that the both of us did. You were very keen on a lot of the research that you were doing going into this one, which considering it was your my idea because yeah. I started listening to this book on like plagues and how germs shape history, which is like. Wasn't even for our book club. She just like found this random it's thing like and went, four, I'm going to go old school. Yeah, a four hour long audiobook. I think it's called um, Plagues Throughout History. It's basically a professor who's just giving lectures and I listen to all of them. No, it's awesome. It's awesome because we, I, I love talking about diseases. I love talking about war, conflict, disease, really any point of extremes because a lot of people have given me a lot of crap online for different things when I'm talking about war or other stuff like that. And I, I will say this, I love studying very extreme points in human history. Very often, one of the most recurring things for that is war, but really it's during extreme times, disease, famine, plague, etc., that you really see a lot of what humans do and are capable of, whether that for me for good or for bad. And throughout a lot of history, there is a lot of bad. <laughs> we see a lot of that. So today... We did a little bit of a mutual project, mutual research going into a lot of stuff when it came to plague, because when you think of plague, Gabby, like what's the what's the big thing that you think of? The Black Death. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the bubonic plague. That's probably everyone's first thing that they think of when they're thinking about disease. But there have been diseases throughout all of history, like so many different kinds of things, all kinds of different stuff that would affect different points. I'm sure that a lot of these names are going to be very familiar for a number of you. Uh, we're talking like leprosy and the idea of people being alienated and the other. You know, when you have leper colonies and stuff like that in history, that you'd have all kinds of things like that. Uh, tuberculosis being the great equalizer, the thing that would give people a good death, which did a video on for a History of Everything podcast YouTube page. If you haven't seen that already, please do check it out. Gonna plug that right there. But it was a really weird thing in Victorian England where tuberculosis was seen as like, kind of sexy and a good way to die, which you've had tuberculosis before. Was that fun? I had a lot of fun. I think the best part of having tuberculosis is when they gave me the antibiotic for it and it turned my tears, urine, sweat, bright orange. It was awesome. I loved every second of the one year of treatment. And it screwed up your eyes. No, I didn't square my eyes. It was just, I can't swallow pills. So the person at the health center would actually come to my house every day because they have to watch you take this course of like yeah. medication. So they come to your house and they sit there while I had to grind up my like pills, put it in applesauce and then eat it. 
Which is why you can't eat applesauce anymore. I did that for a year. Like, don't get TB. <laughs> Do not get tuberculosis. And of course, who can forget dysentery, which is the number one crappiest way to die in history. Which, because literally you'd crap yourself to death. Also, fun fact for anyone, I know this is my favorite fun fact to give among anything. Uh, tuberculosis, or not tuberculosis, dysentery is the number one way that soldiers have died in history. More soldiers died shitting themselves to death than any kind of combat wound you could imagine. You're watching me pick at my mic. I'm so sorry. <laughs> there is so much cat hair in like my, what is this thing? The, the, the. The noiser, like the little buffer thingy that covers the mic. I can't remember what it was called. The, the, the silence, not silencer. No, I'm thinking like guns now. Um, I don't remember what the term it's pretty good, was. But yeah. So it's my, just weird talking about this right after COVID. Like we just had a pandemic. It is like it just the other day. It is kind of weird to be going into diseases immediately after COVID. But I think it's because of that, that we really want to talk about some of the stuff in history and just how weird it was. Like, guys, OK, if we're talking the earliest kinds of genuine pandemics that are recognized in the Western world, because, I mean, there's stuff all over the world. But if we're talking about the stuff that we have sources of that we recognize now in the Western world. We're talking things like the Antonine Plague, which was known well, that's as the earliest pandemic because it was the first worldwide like it spread like yes. along the Silk Road, those trade ports, like the ships coming out of like China. It went because you would have outbreaks everywhere. of diseases because and the re it's funny. I think I put this in here is the Roman Empire. It spread so quickly through the Roman Empire because it was so uniform. It was so cohesive. Yes. Everybody was traveling. Because there was a plague of Athens before this. And then in the book, they also went over like plagues in the Bible or during biblical times. And there were different plagues that happened previously. But the first pandemic. Yes, to where it's massive. This became like a global incident, essentially. When You're I was right. doing research, they were like, yeah, the plague of Athens happened, but it was more... You know, it was more. It's the city state. It was localized. Yeah, That's the term. localized. It didn't spread to every single person. Like they had their little moment, but this literally was going through China, I think, in like six something BC. But yeah, a lot of these diseases are really old, and a lot of them did come out of China in the beginning here. You got to think in terms of population, a lot of like interconnected trade. You're talking about the really big early empires where a lot of this stuff could spread. So that's really is where a lot of it would come out of. Oh, the Chinese, like the Chinese empire was cohesive as well. Huge. I mean, we're talking about like you have the Han dynasty, which is like the big and famous one. But then prior to that, of course, you have like the, the, the Qin dynasty. The Qin dynasty was the first Chinese dynasty where it like united all of China. And then before that, you have the Zhao. And before the Zhao, you have the Shang. But those were significantly smaller. Like they were the Chinese empire. They were the Chinese dynasty. But it did not control nearly the same degree of territory. Basically, if you control a lot of territory, people move back and forth between like your like cities. Yes. But they also move outside of your cities to other countries or other empires. And then people get sick. Yeah. It's yeah. like when you send your three year old to daycare and she gets sick for the first three months that she is there. I will still be bitter about that. OK, I, every parent knows that similar thing, but it's kind of what happens every time they're exposed. But to new basically this plague. So, the Antonin Plague. Yes. Okay. Sorry. We're going on a whole <laughs> tangents from all this here. Yes. Antonin Plague. It all feels we were talking about this, um, you know, after COVID and everything. But all of this seems to have come around from the Silk Road. But the question is really, what is it? Like, what, what is the Antonin Plague? Or Antonine? Antonin? Antonine? It's Antonine, isn't it? 
I think it was Antonine. I think it's Antonine and Basically, I think I'm just messing that up. I looked up to see exactly what it was. The general consensus is it was smallpox, but a lot of some other people were like, no, it's measles, but I'm pretty sure everyone's just leaning towards smallpox. It was smallpox. Yeah. Most people are saying it's smallpox. Either way, this plague erupted in something like 165 AD, this being at the height of Roman power throughout the Mediterranean. We're talking at the point that it is at the reign of the last of the five good emperors, Marcus Aurelius Antonius. The Stoic guy. This is the Stoic philosopher emperor. One of my personal favorites for going and looking at. But this if, is Antoninus. Antoninus? That's what it says. Antoninus? Mar- Marcus Aurelius. Well, people know him as Marcus Aurelius. That's the thing. Like, it's oh, Marcus yeah. Aurelius. Yeah. And then Antoninus, because him and then his successor afterwards, I think at that, that point, they were like the Antonines. Like, it was the, it was like the different. That's where the plague gets its name. It's also called the plague of Gal- Galen. 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 Because that's the physician that actually took care of the people and recorded the symptoms. And we'll get more into that later on. But can you imagine? I. It, it doesn't sound like. Imagine have- taking care of him in that, with that level of technology. I just want to know how he stayed healthy. I actually found like a copy of like Galen's notes. If you go to JSTOR, I think I'll try to put it in the comments or on the website. It's really cool. You can actually read through his notes. I love those little like primary source stuff. I should do some little series on like primary sources of like the writings of things of certain people. Immediately. Once I start researching, I'm like primary sources for whatever the topic is. And then I try to like go through and see what I can access through like, you know my like credentials for college and whatnot. So we're going to have an advertisement after this, but I'm also going to at the same time, give a shameless plug because it's in my opinion, one of the coolest YouTube channels that there is. There's a channel called lens of the past, not lens of the past. What am I saying? Uh, Voices of the past. And what it is, is um, they is literally just readings of primary like sources, like their journals, et cetera, with animation showing all the stuff as it happens. So you'll get stories of the first samurai to step foot in Mexico. And it's just their journal reading it and with stuff. It's really cool. But we're going to have an ad. Hey, everyone. Sakuya here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. 
I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Okay, and we're back. So, as we said, Antonine Plague, really getting into this. This thing was more than likely smallpox, though it also possibly could have been measles. And all of this happened during the reign of the last of the five good emperors, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. Now, he was the last of the five good emperors, which is my personal favorite little detail of Roman history. Do you have any idea how many Roman emperors there have been? A lot. A lot. A lot. Do you know how many good ones there have been? Five. The answer, is, the answer is not a lot, but what this is, this is, this is where it tricks people. People think like, oh, there have been only five good emperors because it's kind of like a trick question with it. The five good emperors comes from the whole thing where it's. Um, they weren't bad at their jobs. No, 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 no. It's like um, it was five good in a row. Like it was five guys in a row that didn't suck. Because do you have any idea, any idea about how common in history it was to have a really great, powerful leader who was totally good at what they did, who was then followed by someone who was utter shit? I'd assume it was pretty common, especially in when it was uh, dynasties, so just family lives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I'd assume the dad could be amazing. Their son, he's all right. Couldn't live up to the same standards. was okay. Yeah, I'm not even kidding. That's exactly how it play out. He did his best. And when you talk about people of absolute power, all the power trips that they would get under when this would happen. So, okay, you got the five good emperors. You have the imperial succession of Nerva, then Trajan, then Hadrian, Antonius Pius, and then Marcus Aurelius. And they presided over the biggest, most powerful, majestic days of the Roman Empire. But mind you, this wasn't a bloodline. The Romans did stuff that was very different. It wasn't like it was father to son, father to son, or anything like that. Nerva was raised to like the title because the previous guy was assassinated. Uh, the others were adopted as heirs. So they were adopted by the previous person that was charged. They would be kind of distantly related as pretty much anyone within Roman society was at the imperial level. Like if you're, if you're in the upper classes, you're building marriage alliances and that's exactly how it works. The period was huge for consolidation and expansion of the empire from Northern Britain to Dacia, which is uh, if you're talking about the region going into Romania, like where that is now around the Danube river, that's where that is down to Arabia, Mesopotamia, everything. The empire was consolidated. Its defenses were perfected. It had a fairly uniform provincial system that covered the entirety of the empire. And those that weren't direct provinces were client states that served under Rome. And these client states, many of them over time were gradually being reincorporated as just direct provinces. Even the government like within Italy proper, Italia, was now being turned essentially into just a province and not the center of what was Rome. It was just a province among the many of the empire. So this was a really big thing. All of this was accompanied by Romanizing of people, of centralizing the language, the civilization. Mind you, it wasn't perfect, but this was the height of Roman power and stability in the Mediterranean. That is, of course, until essentially a whole bunch of stuff came crashing down after the death of Marcus Aurelius and the plague 
would end up playing a pretty big part of that. Actually, actually there's a lot of historians who can pinpoint they They don't blame the plague for its downfall, but they can pinpoint or at least they say you can pinpoint the beginning of the downward like fall of Rome. The decline. Yes. Yeah. By this this plague, like the plague happens and a bunch of other really awful stuff happens. But the plague was it pointed out just like holes in their leadership and their government and just their way of life. And what and, it didn't point out, it created right. a lot of gaps. So it just created a whole lot of issues for this empire. And I mean, it was massive. So if you have, you know, a crack and then it just keeps growing. That's kind of what they say happened with this plague. Yeah, which is a very good way to put it, because there are a lot of different theories as to why people still to this day argue relentlessly. I mean, the videos where you've asked me the questions on TikTok pretty much prove it in the comments section if you go to any of those. So that is absolutely true. But it's. It's a really big deal, and I don't want to understate that. So we need to kind of tell the story of what happened with it. So this plague, it was brought into the empire by soldiers who were returning from Seleucia, which is a major city that is on the Tigris River. The Seleucid Empire was a really big thing prior to this. They were one of the big rivals of Rome. But the capital at this point with Seleucia was the it was the capital or not the capital, but it was one of the big Parthian strongholds. The Parthians were the new Persian successor state that was the big rival to Rome at this point in history. And they were following the command of this guy called General Lucius Verus, who he was making an attempt in order to subdue the East under Emperor Marcus Aurelius. That siege of Seleucia was successful and the Roman army was victorious, all well and good. But very soon after their victory, they started to notice that um, something was wrong. They started having symptoms of this new illness. And upon returning, the soldiers would bring the disease with them and they would spread it northward. They would infect Asia Minor. So going into Turkey, Egypt, Greece, Italy, this would spread it everywhere as they would move, as different people would spread it from one person to another, turning the entire thing into a international affair. I say international. Does it really count as international, actually, in that situation when it's well, an empire? You have to well, you have to keep in mind it came from, I guess, China. True. Well, yeah. So it's outside of. So it really does. It, so it just continues the spread. It didn't right. become an international affair from them. It became an international affair from the source. Yeah, you're right. Basically, that the plague spread. It spread rapidly. It spread massively due to the fact that the sheer size of the Roman Empire, the 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 political, the economic cohesiveness of it, just allowed it to spread rapidly within the territory and travel much further than in history many things were able to do. Because before, people would have just, you know, shut off the border to the enemy. You wouldn't also, have been allowed to go I there. I think its incubation period had a lot to do with how quickly it spread. Because What do you mean? So it was a two-week incubation period. So those soldiers were probably like, hey, we're fine. We're going to go back. And they headed back to where, you know, wherever they were going to get oh. stationed next. And they weren't sick yet. But then they got there and then they started showing symptoms. And then the people they met up with were like, oh, we're fine. And then they probably went somewhere else. And it was two weeks. Like what everyone was talking about with COVID and spring break. What was it? Wasn't the, um, the first major outbreak that occurred in the United States of COVID? Couldn't they trace it back to like some beach party in Florida? I have no I idea. I swear I remember reading about that years it ago. It sounds like something they would have It was a spring break up, thing. Though. It doesn't sound like something they would have actually traced. There, I'm not sure though. There was a spring break event, I remember. There but, were spring break events in 2020, but it was spreading like, before you're right 
Yeah, you're probably right. The incubation period would have definitely contributed to it. And as they travel and spread things around, it's going to get significantly worse. And people had all kinds of ideas, though, of how it spread and what happened to it, like to cause it in the first place. Like, I don't know if the thing that I was talking about was Florida was true, but uh, these people were believing that things like, um, oh, the disease came because Lucius Verus opened a closed tomb in Seleucia, unleashing a curse onto his soldiers. And like that was the origin of the disease. Essentially, the, the idea of it is that the disease was a punishment for the soldiers sacking the city after taking an oath to spare it. There is um there's all kinds of different writings and biographies. Yeah, their biographies. Ferris and Marcus Aurelius, they have like biographies that attribute the outbreak to viola- violating the sanctuary of our God and breaking the oath yes. to not destroy the city. Very so, big thing when it comes to religion at the time. Why would Ferris say that? Like, why would they say that if they weren't true? To use explanations to justify why something would happen that it's not necessarily in the hands of them. They're being punished by the gods. Like, I'll give you this as an example. When Rome would have a major military defeat, like as they had a couple of them during Carthage in the beginning, they w- people in ancient times would often attribute great meanings to omens. And what the Romans did, one of the big things that they had to predict the future was that they would have sacred chickens. And those sacred chickens um, were being taken care of on a ship in order to, you know, have it being predicted by the priests who would interpret their actions and meanings for what the will of the gods was. And when the omens one day were bad, I can't remember the name of the general that did this, but when one of the predictions of the upcoming battle were bad, he tossed the chickens overboard and said, yeah, well, suck on that, basically. And then they lost the battle horribly. And so the entire defeat was blamed on the fact that he threw the chickens overboard. It sounds dumb, but that is welcome to superstition and beliefs and stuff with oracles and prophecy and other stuff. It's the Romans were astrologists, but with chickens. (laughs) So, so that's where that comes from. The one of one of the one of the other stories that they had is that there was a Roman soldier who opened a golden casket in the temple of Apollo in Babylon, and that that is what allowed the plague to escape. There's a lot of different stuff in here that people believe. But before we get into that further, add time. Everybody shush. William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. 
Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. And we're back. Okay. So this disease, right, it affects Rome in pretty much two waves. The first outbreak of the disease goes until 180 AD, and this affects the entirety of the Roman Empire. While the second outbreak was going to occur Significantly later, we're talking like 70 years later in 251, and this just compounds the effects of the earlier outbreaks. It's so much worse because you're talking about at that point, what, two, maybe three generations further? And so if, if, it, if it attacked in successive waves, you know, 10 years or so, that means that you'd see situations where, yeah, there'd be a lot more initial damage, but people would probably get more resistant to it at that time. But you come back three generations later, that's a whole new fresh wave of people that are going to be wiped. Some historians would argue that the plague is, as Gabby had put it, be a useful starting point for the beginning of the decline of the Roman Empire, or at least the empire in the West. But really, no matter what it is that you say, it is something that definitely helps anchor the idea of what was going to be happening with its ultimate fall. So the first outbreak, it starts off as just rumors coming from the East. People don't really know what's going on. There are a number of different worrying accounts. The things are being passed off as news, rumors, what have you, of this terrifying new disease that is coming out of the East. The incubation period was approximately two weeks, which would allow the disease to move very stealthily through the population, at least at first, before everyone is ultimately marked up and very obviously affected by it. Those long incubation periods are yeah. terrifying because you're just you're walking around. And you're like, oh, I'm fine. It's like I'm fine. Totally. Do you remember when we got like COVID and we were just walking around with like a little bit of sniffles and we kept know, testing no negative? Deal. So we're like testing negative. And so obviously they we're, were like, totally fine. Yeah. They were like, you're not sick because we work in healthcare. They're like, you're fine. You're totally fine. So while well, we worked in healthcare, I work in healthcare now. And so we were like, OK, yeah, we have a cold. And we just were like, yeah, we have a cold. Yeah. Five days later. Yeah. It's. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's suspicious. That's weird. That's so odd. <laughs> now, if we're talking symptoms of what these people were feeling, though. So according to the records, the most common symptoms that people were experiencing were fever, diarrhea, vomiting, being thirsty because they're getting dehydrated, probably from a lot of sweating, having a swollen throat, coughing. Galen, that guy that you were talking about, the first um, the first physician that we have the real like serious writings from this period about this disease. He noted that the diarrhea and this is going to get very descriptive and graphic. If anyone has the option to skip forward like 10 or 15 seconds right now, do so. Uh, that it went from red to blackish, which suggested gastrointestinal bleeding, like your insides were being torn apart by this thing. The coughing produced a foul odor on the breath and black skin markings over the entirety of it, distinguished by red and black, like 
papules and eruptions. So you said um, your insides are being torn up by it, but no, they could actually get the sores on the inside of their body because people who had it really, really bad would cough up scabs that had formed inside of their body, <sighs> which I'm assuming if they had gastrointestinal bleeding, odds are they potentially may have had scabs like, you know, going through your intestines, which is so icky. Like, I feel so bad because can you imagine? <sighs> I would definitely also be like, yeah, the gods have said die, because how else would you explain any of this to someone without any sort of like medical knowledge? Yeah, it, that is, I can't, I'm, I, I'm just thinking about that right now for what that would take in order to, to do so. Because you see like, oh, people hacking up a lung. No, people were coughing up straight up coughing that up body parts. That bothered me. That bothered me. Like, and I see a mm. lot of gross stuff working in like a diagnostics lab, but that Oh, I got to handle that stuff directly me. too. I remember. So the, the illness here, right? It, it lasts for roughly... Two to three weeks. Not everyone who gets it dies, but it is a horrible experience nonetheless. There was a Roman historian by the name of Dio Cassius who estimated that approximately 2,000 deaths per day were occurring in Rome at the height of this outbreak. In the second outbreak, the estimate of the rate of death was significantly higher, upwards of 5,000 per day. This is what you were saying. It affected a whole group of new people who yes. didn't have any immunity to it. So it just went. Really, really high for that second outbreak. So I have a personal theory. I don't think it covered this also, very much, but I think I have a theory why. But these numbers are not, they're not very like exact. These are all estimations. Oh, like estimates, estimates from writers. We because, don't know. Yeah. I went around looking at different people and multiple different people said different things. So take it with a grain of salt. It's somewhere between 2,000 to 5,000. Yeah. And some were putting it at like 20,000, which was ridiculous. Yeah, somewhere like one-tenth of the population died. Others said it was less. Some said it was more. I think the highest one I saw was 33% of the entire population. But that most numbers are significantly lower than that. But what was your theory as to why so many new people around the Mediterranean died? So we're going to cover this in the, in, in, later on here in the podcast for like what people were doing in response to the plague. But after the plague passes through the first time, there's been so much depopulation that more people are needed for work. They're needed for work. They're needed as soldiers. They're needed as all this stuff. So more barbarian migrants, essentially, like the border opened up more and more people were brought in to be able to work. Like even like we're going to talk about this at some point, but so many soldiers died that they ended up having to raise like free slaves to turn the slaves into soldiers so that they could replenish the military. You say they opened up their borders. They had closed borders back then? Different points. So you would have- Did they have like border patrol? Kind of. So you'd have entire tribes. So you- Did they have immigration attorneys? Like, what are you saying? They would open up tribes. So, so here's the thing. When people would move, it, you could have just a couple families. You could have all this. But let's say that you have a bad harvest or it's really cold, like the weather starts changing. And so you're not getting good stuff. Entire villages, series of villages would just up and move. In ancient times. So you'd have situations where, oh, here's a group of a thousand people that are now trying to cross into Roman territory because they're looking to settle into new lands for new farmland. Would they turn them away? Some situations that you did depend. Now, the Romans were typically I'm going to say the words good about this because the Romans would Romanize everyone, essentially. So they would bring the people in. They would convert them into becoming Romans. They would settle them in specific places. This is the most common way that 
Roman emperors would deal with migrating tribes is they would give them lands in an area. They'd and then assimilate enlist. them. Yeah, basically. they would do this. Now, over time, this became way past the point that they could actually handle an issue. But my theory is that when they were bringing in more people to replenish all the ones they lost, you're talking about incorporating new people that were never exposed to it in the first round. And now they get screwed over or their descendants do 70 years later, which sounds awful. That's not great. Yeah. So th- that the death rate is introduced to these people that don't really have immunity and it just gets bad. There was a Roman historian by the name of Orosius or Orosius who reported that the severity of the new plague was particularly bad. He has a quote going in here saying there followed an epidemic which spread through many provinces and the plague which ravaged Italy so great that everywhere farms, fields and cities without cultivators and abandoned by their inhabitants, gave place to ruin in woodlands. Essentially, so many people died that the farmland that they had set aside for cultivation got abandoned and it just turned back into forests because there wasn't anyone to harvest it or to work it or to clear it. or to Slash and burn doesn't work if no one is slashing and burning. Because remember, what, what did you describe would happen in Trinidad with the bamboo? Like if you just left it. It would just go back. Like that's just. It would take over everything. It's bamboo though. Bamboo is so hard to get rid of. You have to like dig it up and it's still going to find a way to grow because you're not going to get all of it. It's true. In this case, we're talking about a 70 year period that stuff didn't get repopulated in. There is an account of Aeslis Arstides who illustrated just how rapid the infection would spread. That it didn't distinguish between people that were old, young, or even species. The quote from it goes, I happened to be in the suburbs at the height of summer. The plague infected nearly all of my neighbors. First, two or three of my servants grew sick, then one after another. Then all were in bed, both the younger and the older. I was the last to be attacked. The livestock, too, became sick, and if anyone tried to move, he immediately lay dead before the front door. Everything was filled with the despair of the wailings and the groans. Every kind of difficulty. Yeah. You couldn't move. You just died. There's, um, there's an anonymous Roman author who outlined just these desperate attempts of Roman consuls that would try to allow people of all classes to grieve for the dead. Because you know how even nowadays there is, um, there's, there's a funeral industry, like, right? Like you have people that prepare and take care of all this stuff. And funerals are expensive. They're expensive nowadays. People still had the same thing back then. There was a difference between a poor man's funeral and a rich person's funeral. And for a bunch of people, so many people died, they could, just couldn't afford it. Like at all. So, what did they do? Well, so many thousands of people were carried off by the pestilence, including a bunch of nobles. And so what ended up happening was that these people that were left behind with all these estates and all this money and everything that was left over, they ended up donating a bunch of money to the lower classes, essentially, to use for funeral expenses. So many rich people died that the, a bunch of wealth could be used to pay for poor people's funerals. That is actually, it's not nice that they died. It's not nice. But, but it's, it's like, nice that they were like, hey, we have all of this money that we don't need here. Usually, That's actually really nice. Usually what happens after large amounts of uh, death or destruction or war, that, that's what happens. Hell, the exploration for the new world that occurred under like Columbus was largely funded by funds that were seized from uh, like the Islamic lands and Jewish, like Jewish families and stuff there that were kicked out and their assets were seized. That makes so, 
I'm not going to say what I was going to say, but I was just going to say that makes it so much worse. Welcome to history. <laughs> yeah. You hear one thing, you think, man, that's pretty bad. Then you hear another detail and you're like, wow, that got it so much worse. Welcome yeah, to history. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. <laughs> so with so many deaths of people all across society, they had to take some pretty extreme measures. But we're going to get into that after an ad break. And we're back. Okay, so a lot of extreme measures had to be taken. So many people died that there was a massive shortage of not just, you know, farmers and the everyday person, but the people who would be holding political office, like the administrators, the bureaucrats, everyone, which creates a massive administrative crisis, right? Now, traditionally, if you're talking about the Roman political system, Romans could only apply for political office if they had three generations of Roman citizenship. So you could be a person who served in the Roman legion, and after 20 years, you earned your citizenship, and then three generations thereafter, like your, th I guess, actually, would it, by that logic, would it be the third generation after, or would it be the fourth generation? I'm not sure which, actually, that's a good question that I'm now asking myself, but whichever one it is, the further generations would then be able to do stuff in politics. You wouldn't be able to do it before, even as a citizen. You had to be Roman, like properly Romanized through and through. I can see your face of judgment for it here, but it's 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 how they it's how they helped manage and control things within society. But that wasn't going to work anymore. The rules ended up getting dramatically changed in Athens in around 174 or 175 AD, where they send a uh, there's a letter that is sent by Roman emissaries or, or, or it's sent to emissaries by the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. That is just being like, oh, God, this is so bad. This sucks. Listen, guys, guys, I will compromise and I'm going to grant to the Athenians that in respect of all of their great services that they have given to the empire, that whether a man has a father of good birth or was expelled because of some other kind of older political issues, because you had people who had their citizenship and other stuff revoked. So Yo, yo, that could, that was a huge thing that could happen. Like if you got banished, you got your citizenship revoked, you were no longer protected under the law. That was a horrible punishment that you could be given because you were basically ostracized without being ostracized. What would you have to do? Well, <laughs> if you lost your citizenship, you could still work and do all this other stuff. You just basically had no legal protections. But you'd have to pay taxes, right? Oh, yo, you still have to pay and do all that. But you had, gotta pay taxes. you couldn't run an office. You didn't get any kind of benefits. You couldn't get anything, essentially. So- that rule considering three generations uh, and along with the people who had been kicked out or banned or other. Yeah, they the people who got banned got their ranks back uh, and they removed all of those requirements so that people could, could actually run for stuff. Because they didn't have people. Even at the top echelons of society, right, the disease was unrelenting. It claimed the life of uh, Lucius Verus, that general guy from before in 169. The guy who brought it back to them? The guy who brought it back to him here. And eventually the emperor who would succumb to the plague in 180. Marcus Aurelius? Yeah. Now we'll get more into that, but that's, that's well, when no, all that we happens. Can't name, if we have a son, we can't name him Marcus Aurelius because we're like, oh, we're going to name him Marcus Aurelius, but he died of the plague. Not going to name him that. If you, okay, I, I have to say this. If you want to remove names from history, because of horrible ways that people have died. Most names in history are going to disappear really fast. And that's just what we're going to have to deal with. Look, Joya's name, there's like 15 people with it. Because, you know, we looked for something fresh and new. Not somebody who died from the plague. Oh, wow. 
he did a lot of other things besides that. <laughs> but the gist of it, the plague did destroy a lot, right? It left the Roman economy in a horrible wreck. The evidence from surviving land leases that come out of Egypt, which Egypt was the breadbasket of the empire. This was the place that was producing. Oh, shoot. Why can I not remember the statistic on it? This is going to bother me. Egypt was responsible for over half. I know it was at least that. So, yes, if you'd look it up, I'm pretty sure it was over half of all grain. That was being consumed in the Roman Empire, like it came out of Egypt. It was the breadbasket of the empire. It was it was ridiculous. So all these lend leases that were occurring before that essentially get wiped out. It just it shows the devastating effect. So here's the here's the math on it. While you're looking it up, there was a set of 53 land leases that were illustrated before 165. Each one of these leases possessed a relatively large area or plot of land around 20 auras, which uh, uh, one aura was around 2,700 meters squared. However, after 165, they only had an average of eight auras. So less than half. And during the 170s, this reduced to seven. The duration of the leases would also decrease as one to three like years, like for leased land would essentially disappear entirely. This being very quickly, too. It was just after 166. And in addition, during the period of 165 to 183, rent would plummet. Because you have to think about it now. You have significantly less people that are trying to rent land. There is not nearly as much demand. And now as a result of that, the prices for everything, well, I mean, for land, plummet. I mean, think what happens now. You go into a place and if everyone moves out, the rent and all the other uh, like apartments become super cheap. Okay, so it doesn't give like a percentage of how much grain was produced by Egypt, but they produced an estimated surplus of 6 million modi of wheat. So roughly 26 million metric tons that was exported to Rome and other regions of the Mediterranean. So I'm assuming that was a huge percentage. Yeah. Um, all of the answers to this question are locked behind like paywalls. And I do not have the time to, <laughs> I don't have the time to go through right now. Here's a short of it for anyone that might be confused. So you know how um, the Roman Empire split into West and East and that kind of thing. So the Eastern Roman Empire controlled Egypt, right? When the Arabs came out of Arabia under like, like under Islam and they took Egypt that was the biggest blow to the Byzantine economy. It they essentially would be almost impossible to recover after that because they would lose so much of their resources, their money, everything out of it. You could not maintain the cities that they did because they no longer had the food production necessary for it. I'm not even joking. Every single website is like, a pay wall. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the short of it, as we talked about, though, rent goes down like way, way down. And with the highest rents of the period being only half of what the highest prices were in 165, we're talking about a 25 year low that ended up occurring in 182. It just plummets, absolutely plummets. The lack of Roman citizens is then further exemplified by the fact that salaries increase drastically in Egypt. Field laborers would see their wages double from four to seven obols in 152, all the way to 10 to 14 obols in 169. 
we're we're talking about a rate. Imagine if you 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 were getting paid, you know, forty thousand dollars, and then within fifteen years, the exact same job. You didn't go up in rank. You didn't do anything. Within fifteen years, you were now getting paid one hundred and twenty. No, two hundred grand. And all you had to do was move to Egypt. Yeah. Oh, I'd do it. Yeah, I'd do it too for a check. I mean, you still needed it for the land, for everything here, for production. But it's just there was so many less people, merchants and tradesmen, less skilled workers. They would all suffer serious heavy losses. There would be um, there'd be all these petitions from traders, like you had ones from uh, Pacioli in one seventy four that complained that oh, they couldn't afford their rent at the headquarters because the ranks of all their merchants were just destroyed, so they weren't able to collect enough tithes from their payments. It's like um, if anyone in here is in college or was in college in like a frat house, imagine if half of all of your your frat house members died and now you couldn't afford to pay for the house. So the college seized it back. Wouldn't they just raise the rent? So you, 80 people who were left would just pay more. You'd think about it, but the price of all the laborers and everything also got very expensive. So they couldn't afford that because like inflation, everything got more expensive. Oh, right. Except for rent. It's just what would happen. So as I was saying, everything got expensive. Everything got interrupted. It was not good at all. Um, One of the big driving factors behind the Roman economy was construction. They would just have building projects for monuments, for entertainment, for all kinds of different things. Anything you could imagine, the Romans were just building it. And so the records indicate that there was a huge disruption for public construction between 166 and 180, which was the first significant break since the establishment of the empire nearly 200 years earlier. In fact, there were several major economic like deviations that occurred during Marcus Aurelius's reign. There was a 50% cut in spending on Italian public buildings a 25% decrease in the rate of public inscriptions. They were in a recession. They were in a recession. They didn't have any people to do any of the jobs. And the people that they did have to do the jobs, they had to pay more, and there were significantly less people to tax. It was just bad. This was then exasperated by the fact that there were significantly uh, lower amounts of- Exasperated? What did I say? Exasperated. Exasperated? Exasperated. I mean, either can work, I guess. Maybe, I guess. So, so you know how stuff gets more expensive when there's less people to work it and you don't have as much of a supply, like supply and demand, the basic kind of thing. So this was a really big factor for construction materials because it's not just the people that are building the physical building. It's the stuff for it's the also for the people that are collecting goods in the first place. When you had the imperial quarries, I believe is where it is. So Decimium in Figria, this is where the really big famous Roman marble was being mined. And there was just this big break in production that occurs from the mid 160s all the way until 173. Another quarry that quarry that was located in Taos, which was in Asia Minor, that gets dropped even more because 14 out of 26 inscribed blocks that they were found at the site dated from 163 to 166, which suggests that these massive bricks that they were getting were just lay down there. And they just not touched for so years. They, they just had, abandoned it. Do you remember, like, do you know people like my um, ex from 
college is building a house right now and he's building a, he's been building a house for like nine months because there's like, you know, building supply shortages yeah. after COVID. They had that. Yeah. Yeah. So it happens in most pandemics. It just repeats, I guess. Yeah. They just ran out of issues. workers. There was no one to do any of the stuff with it. And the prices just went up drastically, which you'd think would get more people to go into it to do it. But there was just that few of people who could do it. It's not like nowadays where you could probably train someone in a relatively short amount of time. They just physically didn't have the people. There wasn't anyone there. It's like when the plague hit, we were trying to get nearly as, or, or I play when the pandemic hit, I'm calling it a plague now. I guess it kind of was, but it's like when the pandemic hit and we were trying to get as many workers into uh, the lab as we possibly could to process paperwork. It was bad. So you have construction workers, you have farmers, you have everyone, but also there were massive losses to the Roman military because this would wipe out so much of the Romans military prowess. There were a bunch of writers at the time that were mentioning that the entire Roman military system was effectively collapsing because of this new strain. You had a Roman scholar by the name of Jerome who particularly emphasized that this thing was being like, like the army itself was being annihilated over the course of 168 to 172, quote, there was such a plague throughout the whole world that the Roman army was reduced to extinction or almost to extinction. Elsewhere, there'd be other writers like uh, Eutropius who would write that a large part of the population in Rome, Italy, and the provinces and almost all of the military fell victim to the disease. The reason why this is a problem is kind of based off how the Roman system works. So you know how in a lot of militaries, in order to be drafted, like in order to join the military, you have to be a citizen. You don't necessarily have to in America. In fact, joining the military is one of the quicker ways that some people who are not citizens could expedite the process of becoming a citizen. So I'm comparing our system to the Roman one. So if you have the Roman system, the way that theirs worked is that in order to become a citizen, if you were a non-citizen, you joined the military and you would serve in a legion for 20 years. And after 20 years, you would get your citizenship and every descendant afterwards would be a would, Roman, would citizen. Be a Roman okay. citizen. And America has a kind of similar thing where if you are a foreign national, you can serve in the Roman military like you have a green card, you have this sort of thing. I'm not sure about the finer details of it because it gets a little bit more complex going into, into the legality of it, but it can help expedite your process of being approved for American citizenship. Like you can become a citizen through this. The issue comes with the fact that so many people died that people were not able to be released essentially from military service. You have these records of discharge certificates where, you know, people are being released from the military for maybe sickness or broken bones or like other stuff where they're not able to really recover from as easily. They're not getting discharged because they have no people to actually replace them. So you have <laughs> a broken bone and you just feel like March. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, people would be, well, I'm doing assuming that they weren't doing any conquests, right? They were probably just trying to just hold off attacks on the defensive. Everything is on the defensive at this point. If I could compare this to anything, there is a scene for anyone who has seen family guy where Stewie and Brian end up joining the U.S. military and get sent over to Iraq and they're trying to get out. So they shoot each other in the foot I've to, seen get the, get, to, to get discharged. And then the, their commanding officer just be like, oh, you yeah, know, that's fine. You'll still be here. 
Well, but we're shot. Yeah, well, we have two dead guys guarding the barracks over there. And they pan over and it's just two skeletons in military uniforms guarding because no one wanted to join. That is essentially what it was like for the Romans at this point. And this creates this huge effect on the wars that are going on, such as on the Macromanic Wars. The Macromanics were the, this was a, a German tribe, like one of the big tribes that was over there in Germania that was affecting things on the border. Why? OK, and get this. This is probably a low blow. But what if they just took their sickest people and sent them to the war? That would have helped them. Mongol tactic. Yeah. I like that. I like they that. They could have just, you know how they took the bodies of like the, uh, what was it? Disease cows and chucked them over right. the walls. They yeah. just did that. But every person they were fighting. <laughs> come on. They yeah. had they had the weapon. They didn't utilize it. That is on them. To be fair, remember what we were talking about from the beginning for why it affected the Romans so much more than it did everyone else. The tribes within Germania we're not nearly as centralized and didn't interact with each other. Yeah, to but same every degree. time that everyone attacked them, you send like the sick ones to the front, right? You got them sick. They send more. You send the sick ones to the front. Someone had to have done that. Rinse and repeat. Like they were sick with this plague. It wasn't a great, you know, mortality rate already. Just go up Someone there. Someone had to have done that. I don't Help know. Help us I, out. I don't have any examples of it, but the more that you're talking about that, the more it makes me think someone had to have done this. I'm going to make it my mission to just look up like, did anybody do this? I need <laughs> to know now. So numbers in the Roman military is getting utterly decimated. And in the face of these dwindling troop numbers, the Roman army was forced to expand the eligibility of who could be a Roman soldier, which was a unprecedented move that for all the people writing about this, all these writers, these nobles, these different people, it was shocking. So they would write things like, and since the pestilence was raging at the time, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor, trained slaves for military service, just had been done in the Punic War, because again, they were in a really bad state when that happened. He armed gladiators also, even turning the bandits from Dalmatia and Dardania into soldiers. He armed the Diomicte, Besides, and he even hired auxiliaries from among the Germans for service against the Germans. Yeah, that was a thing that was necessary and Rome had to do for extended periods past this. It wasn't pretty. This was really, if you want to talk about the degradation in, in Roman society and the downfall of the, of the empire, the Roman pride was its military force. You could say that really from this, the quality of its military dropped because it had to incorporate so many new peoples that were not really trained in the proper Roman fashion or to the same degree of skill and discipline. I'm just starting to see why the empire, why they can pinpoint where it started to all go wrong because yeah, no military, no workers, no merchants. No economy. You know, this is fine. We don't How need How are they that. paying the soldiers? Well, actually, that's a great that's a great question. So they would still pay people. They would still have it. You got to think there's less workers for less everything. So and so many people died. You're able to seize assets still. But the problem is that um, Roman soldiers throughout much of their history, the way that you got wealthy as a Roman soldier was not by being paid. You did get paid. You did have a salary, but you didn't get wealthy unless you sacked something like a city or something and you earned loot. That's where you really got money from. That's why some soldiers, they would get paid bonuses in land, in rewards from sacking settlements, from all these different things. That's where you would really get stuff. 
So this this patchwork army that's created is just inferior to the professional soldiers that would usually make up the Roman legions. That fact was confirmed by major military defeats in 167 on the Germano-Roman frontier. For the first time in 200 years, German tribes were now able to make incursions beyond the Rhine River, which only became more and more frequent as the pandemic would continue to rage on through the 160s and 170s. And this will get worse, but in order to get into that, we're going to have an ad break. And we're back. Okay, so getting worse, getting worse. The thing about Rome is that they had two different faces, you could say, that they would uh, direct towards barbarians. You had the carrot and the stick. The carrot was, we bribe you to go away. The stick was, if you still continue to come at us, we will stab you. The stick was pointy. What I'm saying is the stick was pointy. So with a complete breakdown in its economy, with not able to do anything, this led to a vast decrease in subsidies that Rome was able to provide towards barbarian kingdoms and entities and tribes and different people beyond the Rhine, which was a tactic that for a while now had helped to successfully pacify their more unruly neighbors. Didn't work out so well with this. The Antonine Plague was very traumatic. It was a very big event. And in destroying that economic system, this would stop them from being able to subsidize some of these tribes, which in turn would lead the tribes to migrate more because now they couldn't sustain the lifestyle that they had there. And then it would move into Rome proper and start to uh, raid and invade for better land. No one was using it. That's a fair point, actually, for a lot of this, to be fair. Like, it's sad, but no one was. Why are we fighting, you guys? Like, we don't need it. Really, the short of it is that the Antonine Plague was very traumatic. It was a very brand new experience for ancient Rome. It represented the first big serious decline in its history since its establishment of an empire by Emperor Augustus nearly 200 years earlier. The effects of that illness was not just confined, though, to the military and the economy. There was all kinds of different societal effects. Okay, yeah. So back when I wrote that section on all of the legends as to how the plague started. Yeah. A huge segment of it was like they started blaming the Christians. They basically blamed anyone who was there that they could potentially blame to take the fall for the disease. So they basically were like, the Christians are the exact reason this happened. And then I think there were some other religions that were in there as well. But basically, as it always happens, people... They look, we see it even they today. look for the scapegoat. Yeah, people look for a scapegoat, which is history repeating itself, I guess. Yeah. We're going to get into why and why this is actually even more deadly. And, uh, or not deadly. Um, Screwed up, messed up, weird. We'll get into it. Okay. So, as you said, plague breaks out. People are looking for someone to blame. A lot of people blame the Christians. Marcus Aurelius launches these massive persecutions against Christians who refuse to pay homage to the gods. Homage? Because, homage. Homage to the gods because they believe, right? Okay, this whole thing has come out of not honoring the gods or dishonoring the gods. So that is, if you don't pay homage to them, that this is going to lead to a whole bunch more plague. Right to them, that logic makes sense. This is going to anger them. It's going to turn into even worse things. But ironically, the anti-Christian attacks would create the opposite effect among the general population. because. Unlike when you have Roman 
polytheistic religions, Christians believe with one God and that they had an obligation to assist other people in a time of need, including illness. It was all about sacrifice. It was all about helping people and preparing stuff. Christians early days, very pacifistic and all devoted towards service. Early Christianity is one of those really like, it's almost like a significantly more idealized version of what people would imagine it to be as like a religion of peace. Really, that's like the early days of it. Christians were willing to provide people the most basic needs, food, water, for anyone that was too ill to fend for themselves. They would provide simple nursing care, and this would create all these good feelings between Christians and their pagan neighbors. They would often stay and provide assistance while pagan doctors would flee. And those who would survive would gain comfort in the knowledge that the loved ones like that were Christian would die and get the ultimate reward of heaven. Remember how there was a whole huge thing of martyrdom in the beginning for Christians? Like you had Christians that were actively antagonizing the government by refusing them like civil disobedience because they wanted the government to kill them publicly because if they killed them publicly, that meant that they were a martyr and martyrdom was a guaranteed entrance into heaven. That's kind of what was happening here, where all of the service, everything that they wanted to do, if they died over the course of doing all of these good things, well, that was basically a guarantee to get into heaven. And that Christian promise of salvation and the afterlife, that attracted a lot of new followers, which expanded the growth of monotheism within this polytheistic society. And the gaining of these new followers and adherents would establish the context in which Christianity would gradually begin to emerge as the sole official religion of the empire. Obviously, it's still being persecuted at this point. But this was the beginning of its more popular rise. And can we do an episode on the rise of Christianity in the like Roman Empire? Yeah. I think that'd be really. I would love to do one for all like big religions for Islam, Christianity, Buddhism. Judaism would probably be really hard considering how old it goes back, but I could definitely try my hand at that one too. I think that would be a good series to go for. I think that would be a good series. The big thing was, remember what I said about Christians being super pacifists? To be a Christian at this time in history meant no military service, no killing, no nothing. In fact, a whole bunch of early Christians were straight up vegetarian. It was very, very specific for it. Um, the big thing that would happen is that Rome, being a very militaristic society, where serving in the military, that was your honor, that was good, that's what you needed. And remember, this is the time when most of Rome's military was really hurting in numbers. The fact that you had all these Christians that were refusing to serve in the military, that really pissed off the government, causing them to get persecuted even more. So they got what they wanted. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you say like, oh, that's nice. And then you're like, oh, that was probably really awful for them. Yeah. Really, the short of it is that at the end here, the Antonine Plague, the pandemic, it really would have seemed like the end times. It was the end of the world. So that happened back then where they didn't have like a knowledge of science. They did not mm -mm. know what was happening. They had no way to curb it. Like I did remember reading that they were actually trying to quarantine people, but it didn't really work because the incubation period was two weeks. So like they will quarantine and then they would still be infectious when they left quarantine. 
this happened back then. Do you remember during like peak COVID when everyone was like, this is the end. Like we're never going to be normal again. Everything will suck forever. Everybody spiral into just depression. Just two more weeks. Just two more weeks. As like, was said if again. we could just stay inside until oh. the end of summer, if we could stay inside till like past the holidays and everyone was like, we're going to stay inside forever. Like, could you imagine this happening back then when like communication wasn't as easy? Medication wasn't as accessible. Knowledge wasn't there. No, absolutely. It would have definitely seemed like something where it makes sense why Christianity would become, you know, a leading religion because at least they had some sort of answer. Like they had something to put a little bit of a bright light on that entire ordeal because this whole thing, like if you look at it through a lens of like, hey, absolutely no knowledge because we can talk about the incubation period. They probably had no clue what was happening. Nope. Nope. No, they didn't. Hell, even doctors didn't. I mean, we just literally did the episode on Egyptian medicine. Uh, uh, like a little bit ago. Like last week. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it is last. Yeah. Well, when they hear this, it'll be like two or three weeks. But yeah. Yeah. So we, we just did that one. The knowledge was obviously not perfect. There was a degree of knowledge that in ancient societies is more impressive than we give them credit for. But not of the level to understand what is going on with the pandemic. Really not. And for these people, it really would have seemed like it was the end of the world. But as with all things, or maybe not necessarily with all things, but most things with most things, it wasn't. The plague would pass through the country. It would leave behind a devastated people, devastated states and provinces. And it really is possible that here you'd begin to be able to mark the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. But really, at that point, we're talking about a debate for another day. The plague would pass. People would recover. The Roman Empire would recover. But never back to the state that it was. And ultimately, that would be the end. So what do you mean it recovers, but not to the state that it was? Because it wasn't around for a lot longer. It was, but that was its height. Really, you know, past that point, you're talking about a point where um, the Roman Empire would recover. Then you have the crisis of the third century. Can you do the crisis of the third <laughs> century next week? Because I have no clue what that means, okay. but it sounds so, dramatic. So, Gabby, Gabby, remember how um, remember how we did the 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 podcast episode on how shitty the 14th century was? Time like all the plague and misery and economic disasters and everything. We're covering a lot of like disasters in time periods at this point. But um, we also have to do a family history. Yes, we will. But short of it, for anyone that is confused, the crisis of the third century was a long period of time over the course of the third century in Roman times where it's like sometimes they would have multiple emperors over the span of one year. There was a period where I believe they had four separate emperors that were all declaring themselves to be the one true emperor, just massive cases of civil war, uh, I, I think there was more plague that was occurring in there. Economic disaster, everything. We can definitely do the crisis of the third century because that is, it, it, it's going to be a whole shit show just like the 14th century was. Amazing. But now, family history, like you said. All right, so today's family history comes from a listener by the name of Austin Jones. So Austin, thank you very much for sending in your story. It looks like a pretty long, good one. So greetings, Gabby and Stephen from Bentonville, Arkansas. So first of all, I would just like to say that I am a new listener on the podcast on Spotify as of October 2022. Oh yeah, fairly recent. 
I've always been a bit of a self-proclaimed history buff, and I've been looking for something a little bit different than uh, Dan Carlin. I found this podcast, it was hooked, and I binged it all to this point. Awesome. You got through like the really crappy early audio episodes with potatoes and everything, Thank even though they're you. fun. Thank, Thank you, you for sticking with it. <laughs> when you started taking stories from listeners, I got very excited as I have a diverse historical heritage. On my mother's side, I'm told that I'm related to Anne Custis Lee as well as Robert E. Lee, but separately, though, I have yet to see paper evidence. This is a very common thing in, in family history, buddy. I'll, I'll grant you that. On my father's side, I am told that I'm related to Stonewall Jackson, though, again, I haven't seen paper evidence for that either. <laughs> the one thing that I have that is objective fact is that I am a registered member of the Muskie Nation based out of Okmulgee, Oklahoma, which is kind of an in relation to the story that I want to tell. My story is about an ancestor of mine with an unfortunate last name. His name was Arthur Gooch. I know I'm lo loving the story already. So Arthur Gooch grew up in Okmulgee during the prosperous 1920s, but his life was anything but easy. He lost his father, James Edward Gooch, at the age of eight, and his mother, Adela Usury or Usury Gooch, could neither read nor write and instead worked menial jobs. Named for a paternal uncle, his family called him Little Arthur, but after the death of his father, the closeness with many of his relatives diminished. By 1920, Adela was 44 years old and buried her husband and three of her seven children and taken in her widowed brother and his son and two daughters. While Oklahoma and the country flourished, they lived in extreme poverty. At the age of seven, the blue-eyed, black-haired Gooch peddled apples on the streets of Okmulgee and began stealing in order to help care for his mother. In 1923, at the age of 15, Gooch dropped out of school in order to find work having only progressed to the sixth grade. Left without a father and little money, Gooch's life deteriorated from desperate to criminal. By the mid-1920s, Gooch found work at a local grocery store and was the sole supporter of his mother. Working in the butchery, he became acquainted with a fellow employee, Mary Lawrence, and they married in 1927. Happy and content, the couple was soon expecting a baby. But after the birth of their son, Billy Joe, Mary quit her job, and the family life changed. The two started quarreling, and Gooch dreaded going home after work. Soon, he began passing the nights, drinking and carousing. And on September 25, 1930, when his son was only one month old, the Akmulgi police arrested Gooch for forgery, later dismissing the charge. In July of the following year, he was now unemployed, and four other men, Jesse Bohean, Charles Banks, G.E. Green, and Willie Carter, were arrested for stealing and stripping two cars, one vehicle belonging to A.D. Adcock, who was an oil field worker, and the other to Deputy Sheriff Harry Devin. Presented before Judge Mark L. Bozarth, Gooch and George Green pled guilty to grand larceny and received a sentence of 18 months in the McAllister State Penitentiary. After serving 11 months, Gooch was released on June 7, 1932. But before he saw the inside of a jail cell again, he would plead guilty knowing he would get a lesser sentence. By 1934, the Akmulgi police knew his name well, and when a crime was committed, Gooch's name made their list of suspects. Gooch would team up with some other men, and they held up stores, farmers around Stewart and Calvin areas. He and his gang would kidnap their victims and leave them unharmed when it was no longer necessary to keep them. On October 24, 1934, Gooch and three other men escaped from a prison in Holdenville. They robbed and kidnapped their way from Holdenville to Henrietta to Choctaw. 
By November 7th, two of the members of the gang had been captured, leaving Arthur Gooch and Ambrose Nix to hold up a gas station in Tuscoma. The men decided to turn south, dumped their car in Durant, stole another, and upon entering Tyler, Texas on November 25th, held up another gas station and tying the owner and employee to a tree. Damn. This is, this is, this is, this is just this escalating is most, as time goes on. This is the most action-packed family history we've gotten so far. We've gotten a lot of really cool ones. On November 26th, the duo committed a crime that would eventually lead to the demise of Arthur Gooch. While driving through Paris, Texas, the two men had a flat tire in the early morning hours and they sought out an auto repair shop. Policemen R.N. Baker and H.R. Marks drove by in their patrol car, noticed the vehicle, and became suspicious, thinking the two men could possibly be part of the Bonnie and Clyde gang. The officer stopped, approached Gooch, and asked to see the title papers of the car. Gooch stated he didn't have them, and Marks and Baker surrounded him. Gooch reached for his gun, and he and Marks struggled. When Baker started to draw his gun, Nix yelled, Hands up! Nix approached Baker, and then shoved him into a glass showcase. The glass broke and a piece cut Baker's left hip. Meanwhile, Gooch had relieved marks of his firearm and the two fugitives forced the officers into the back seat of their patrol vehicle. With Nix holding a gun on the policeman, Gooch retrieved money, three shotguns, two rifles, and four pistols from their stolen car and rejoined Nix. Gooch then held a firearm on Baker and Marks and Nix began driving north, avoiding any major highways. The group crossed the state lines and then they entered Choctaw Country, or County, Oklahoma, and the Pushmata County. Around 9 p.m. on the night of October 27, 1934, 42 hours since kidnapping, Gooch and Nix released the officers in Kiamachi Mountain area between cloudy and snow. Gooch then dressed Baker's wound before releasing the officers, and the fugitives were not seen again until late December. Gooch was eventually arrested just outside of Okama when officers would stop the car that he was riding in. Nix was shot and killed during the arrest, and Gooch was placed in the Okfuski County Jail. He bled guilty just as before, but uh, this was foolish, as this had been right after the Lindenburg Law was passed. He became one of the first six people to be executed under this law. What is the Lindenburg Law? Well, can you actually wait? Can you look it up here real quick? I got you my phone have here. my phone. I, my, my phone is there. Grab it. Grab it. We I'm pretty sure that the law was even if you pled guilty for something, you could still be executed. That's more than likely what it is. L-I-N-D-B-E-R-G-H. Anyway, this is my story, and I hope you guys enjoy it and use it on the podcast. As for a suggestion I mentioned earlier, I might be related to Stonewall Jackson. It would be really good to hear a podcast on him. Honestly, no, stuff like that would be interesting. We've covered how a lot of stuff it? in American. How do you spell it? L-I-N-D. B-E-R-G-H. So Lindbergh Law. I'm pretty sure that it's going to be people that pled guilty before would not be able to be executed. But now this law would, would allow them to be executed if they did something severe enough. Like, oh, no, it's nothing like that. Wait, what is it? Basically, there was something called the Lindbergh Kidnapping Case, which led the U.S. Congress to pass the Federal Kidnapping Act known as the Lindbergh Law. This act made kidnapping a federal offense and allowed federal investigators the authority to pursue kidnappers across state jurisdictions. The public fascination with the Lindbergh kidnapping case continues to this day. Basically, a little girl, uh, Charles Lindbergh Jr., the first child of Charles and Anne Lindbergh, was kidnapped from his home. And it led to this law being passed, the Federal Kidnapping Statute of 1932. 
It prohibited the transportation of a kidnapped person across state lines. Dang. Okay, that's actually fascinating because what that that story was mentioning was that uh, like his crimes were well known to the area. So I'm guessing that they wanted to get rid of him. So now that it was a federal thing that allowed them to just go ahead and execute him. And the reason why it was taken so seriously is because that Lindbergh baby that was kidnapped was not found like alive. So it got a lot of because I think the Lindbergh name is really famous. So. Dang. Well, thank you very much for sending in that story. I actually really appreciate it. That was definitely the more action, one of the more action packed ones that we've done here to this day. If any of you have any family histories to send in, please do send them in to, uh, to the email to the, oh, thank you. <laughs> History of everything podcast.com. You go on there, you hit contact and there's a specific segment to send in your family histories. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you want to go back and listen to older episodes, please do so. Check out the History of Everything podcast YouTube page. Also make sure to, if you can, get our coffee, support us on Patreon, do whatever it is that you can to help support these channels on whatever it is that we can do. Anyway, thank you everyone. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye guys. Bye. Bye.